Welcome back to the Singapore Noodles podcast. I'm Pamelia Chia, and on this show, I have honest and open dialogue with people who are keeping our food heritage alive. Five years ago, I started visiting Singapore's wet markets, and one thing that I'm constantly amazed by is the amount of medicinal plants or vegetables with healthful properties in our region. For example, moringa is known by the Indian community to be full of health benefits, and yet many young Singaporeans choose to consume imported varieties of vegetables such as kale instead because of the superfoods trend. My guest today, Dr. Eric Omedo, is a strong advocate for ulam as an antidote to problems such as obesity and diabetes. In his own words, ulam is a Malay word for any vegetable that is eaten raw, blanched, or lightly boiled and eaten with rice. Dr. Eric is currently working with his research team and chefs like Darren Teo of the Wakan to create a database for these local vegetables and herbs and this will ultimately culminate in the Ulam School, a physical and virtual school. Hi Eric! Hi Vanda, how are you? How are you? I, I'm so happy that you got back to me. I wasn't expecting to receive your email. Um, this is the first time we have had someone with a PhD on the show. So I'm a bit nervous about it. I'm very, very excited to chat with you. Okay. Don't, uh, don't let yourself be impressed with a PhD. Like it's just, it's just uh, <laughs> education. That's all. So when I first read about what you were doing um, in your research and for the Ulam School, I was very, very excited because I feel that Ulam is something that has been forgotten by, by so many people in Singapore. Right. Um, and so I'm very, very curious, like, how has a French person like you become so interested and passionate about preserving this part of, of our culture? Uh, one of the reasons is because I'm married to a Malaysian lady for, it has been a, uh, 17 years now and we have three kids uh, so um, I've been traveling between France and Malaysia but now we have settled down in Malaysia at least, I think for a while uh, it has been uh, almost eight years now and um, one of the things that I I'm a sociologist by training but since I'm in Malaysia I'm a bit more versed into anthropology you know because so many ethnic groups so you know so you have to you have to uh, study social anthropology anyway to understand the society. And uh, because also of my um, uh, back, personal background, which is uh, hotel industry, because I did hotel school and I worked in hotel industry in, in the first chapter of my life. You know? So, of course, I'm interested in food. And uh, so one of my research clusters is uh, what we call a food anthropology. Yeah. It's basically, you know, entry into a culture through studying uh, its food systems. And uh, uh, my mother-in-law is Malay, uh, so that's one of the key reasons. She's the one who introduced me to Ulam. Mm. And uh, so, so I, it was a revelation for me because, um, uh, you know, on a personal basis, the first time I've eaten Ulam, I, I felt very well afterwards. I think like it was really soothing my stomach. So this was the first impression of Ulam. And second, um, when, I, when I got to learn about the diversity and uh, the complexity of Ulam and its medicinal properties and so on, uh, so uh, for me really uh, came across as something which is valuable, is a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of uh, health benefits and also, you know, the, um, the locus of uh, the relationship 
between Malay indigenous communities and to a certain extent Peranakan as well with, with nature. So um, I wanted to know more. So I, I started a bit of research. Uh, not by myself, I, I set up a team because as uh, anthropologists now, you know, it's not, it's not enough to, to understand what is uh, ULAM. So uh, I, I embark with me uh, nutritionists and ethnobotanists and so on, just to shed different lights on the same subjects. And um, what I discovered, which is not surprising, is almost everywhere the same, that, you know, due to um, uh, industrialization and also, of course, uh, urbanization, uh, which is uh, quite high in Malaysia, and I think even higher in Singapore. Uh, uh, Malaysian citizens, especially of course, uh, urbanized. They they are quite disconnected with uh, nature and therefore with the uh, ulam. So they, they even even Malay um, who lives in the cities, they I mean they heard about it of course because you know it's part of uh, tradition heritage, but they 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 forgot about it. They don't practice it. And unfortunately, they are because of the, the you know the public health crisis in Malaysia. Uh, talking, of course, about diabetes. I mean, type two diabetes. Uh, you know, obesity, uh, blood pressure, and so on. Th these are diseases that are related to lifestyle only. You know, uh, so so one way is simply to change your lifestyle. Of course, you know, more sport activities and so on, but also better eating. And uh, Ulam is there, you know, it has been there for centuries and, and beyond. Uh, so I thought, you know, maybe one very simple and uh, pragmatic, pragmatic approach is to try to, um, to help uh, Malaysians to re uh, reconnect again uh, with their um, natural uh, heritage, which is Ulam, which is full of health benefits has been proven, I mean, it has been scientifically proven, you know, so of course there's oral tradition, but some of them has been, uh, I mean, we have evidence, scientific evidence that it works, you know, for nutritional and uh, certain uh, health benefits. So I told myself, you know, why Malaysia, Malaysians would want to uh, try to heal themselves with imported veggies, you know, uh, like the trendy superfoods, uh, you know, the kale and avocado and so on, which is one, super expensive. Second, uh, it doesn't benefit the country. Mm. And, uh, and you, you don't exactly know how uh, they are being grown. You know, they are full of chemicals, unless you buy organic, but again, it's uh, much more expensive. When you, when you have local uh, wild edible plants, uh, which are uh, much cheaper, which uh, come from a short supply chain. So, you know, you reduce the carbon print at the same time. And some of these uh, ulam are, are being uh, cultivated by uh, indigenous groups, you know, by Orangasli. Mm. So uh, might as well uh, redirect the revenue stream to them, you know, uh, if possible, by cutting the middlemen even better. Uh, so th then you you build a kind of virtuous uh, ecosystem for everyone, you know? So um, that's the sociologist in me is speaking now. So, um, that's, so that's what I'm trying to do, uh, that we are trying to do modestly, you know, is very um, uh, progressive step-by-step -step approach because it takes time. Uh, but I think it's, it's worth it. Uh, 
uh, I do not pretend I'm an expert in Ulam, you know, I'm, I'm learning every day, but, uh, uh, you know, because uh, you cannot survive without a team. Mm. And uh, I'll, I really believe very much in uh, transdisciplinary work because uh, endobotanist alone is not enough, nutritionist alone is not enough, uh, sociologist alone, anthropologist alone is not enough as well. So uh, we are trying to together team that believes in it and uh, you know that whose uh, corpus of knowledge can complement each other. Oh my God, I can really sense your passion and it's just so inspiring listening, listening to you speak. But you know, I think the question in my mind is why exactly has Ulam fallen out of favor? I mean, you pointed out many of its benefits. It supports local economy. It is healthier. It's cheaper. So why is it that Malaysians or Singaporeans are not embracing this culture of eating Ulam? Do you feel like it's a negative, there are some negative stereotypes or is it the lack of documentation? So a lot of people don't even know about the benefits. Yes, it's, it's, uh, that's one of the key questions, actually. Familiar, you're right. Um, well, I think it's uh, I, there are two levels of answer in my mind. I think the first one is more or less established. The second one is more my personal opinion. But the, the first one is, is because of uh, ethnic boundaries, I would say. Uh, because uh, Ulam, I've, I believe, is still perceived today in Malaysia and probably in Singapore, I don't know Singapore very well, but as uh, being an ethnicized uh, uh, product, you know, it's uh, because we have we have done uh, conducted short sur uh, small surveys um, in Kale and the surroundings uh, with students, for example, and uh, if you mention Ulam to non-Malay students, um, uh, they will tell you, oh yeah, it's a Malay thing. You know, so th therefore, automatically is ethnicized. You know, uh, the only one who are more familiar with, uh, uh, um, with it, apart from the Orangasli and the Malays, would be the Peranakan. Uh, whether Peranakan Chinese or Peranakan Indians, they they know about Ulam. Um, but um, I mean, if you talk about you know youth, uh, urban youth today, you know, from Kale or suburbs, you know, they. Uh, if they are, even if they are Malays, they some they don't really know. They heard their grandma, you know, uh, talk about it, but uh, that's all. They don't eat it. Uh, uh, so th there is a ethnic factor, definitely. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't cut across um, ethnic boundaries even today. Uh, also, is um, I think it's a generational issue because. In some Malay uh, urban families, I mean, the short surveys we have been doing is, is not like thousands of people, uh, so I cannot say it's representative, but um, uh, you could see when you talk to the son or the daughter of a Malay family, uh, the mom would know about Ulam, would eat Ulam herself, for example, but she, uh, she wouldn't pass it on uh, necessarily to, to her children, you know? Mm. And, um, and when you, when we ask her why, uh, when we ask the parents why, they don't really know. I think they, uh, they, they think it's not worth it because uh, they don't find it necessarily legitimate or they don't have a systematic knowledge about uh, Ulam. So, uh, you know, th there's a problem with legitimacy of Ulam as well uh, in the new uh, global world. Uh, 
So number one factor is definitely ethnic boundaries. Second, I would say, uh, it's not established by research, but it's my personal take on it. Uh, uh, I think it's social status as well for a part, because if you are from upper middle class, of course you have to show uh, signs of uh, belonging to that class, you know, uh, all the symbolism that go with it, you know, that you have a nice car, a nice house, uh, that you have a certain, uh, um, more Western-centric or at least global uh, education and uh, global taste as well. So if you eat ulam and you are from uh, the upper, uh, upper middle class in urban areas, then, um, you know, it's, it sounds a bit too much kampong, you know, so... Hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I read an article about you and your work and I think um, there was one line where I think you or some other person mentioned that if someone eats ulam in Malaysia, they are called gambing. That's, that's probably me. No, no, it's, it's, uh, this one I discovered within um, the context of uh, my university. You know, I'm, I work at uh, UKM, University Kabangsan, Malaysia, hmm. the National University of Malaysia, which is public university. And... Um, so, uh, so, so of course I exchanged with my colleagues and so on, and uh, I was discussing like uh, some years ago with uh, a Malay uh, professor, and uh, what I was starting to discover ulam, so uh, wanted to know a lot of things. So I was asking uh, him about it, and I think he was coming from a, a village in Perak. Uh, so he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, in my in my kampong, the said, the people who eat ulam, we we call them kambing." So, <laughs> And so that really shocked me because uh, being a educated Malay himself, uh, that he has a kind of, uh, yeah, I would say maybe disregard, I'm not sure, to about ulam or indifference, maybe, you know. Uh, or for him, he was really uh, confined to uh, uh, rural areas, you know, and um, something which is not very interesting or something of the past. So I told myself, uh, um, is um, this professor, I mean, representative of uh, of a, a mainstream kind of thought, you know, or, or was it really the exception? And, um, but uh, where, when I discussed and, and made uh, some uh, small investigation, I realized that uh, there is a, Definitely a social status uh, uh, hint to it because um, the the symbol uh, the symbolism of upper class uh, today at least in Malaysia in Singapore I'm not sure is is you have to be connected somehow to globalization you know and uh, and globalization of taste and today unfortunately globalization globalization of taste in this part of the world very often means uh, westernization of taste. So mm. uh, if, if you eat uh, kale and uh, <laughs> avocado and quinoa, yeah. then uh, that, that's quite cool. Uh, but if you eat uh, ulam, it's not very cool, you know? So yeah. uh, that's one really of the, uh, the hindrances uh, to, uh, when you do public advocacy uh, about ulam. Because mm. it's not glamorized at all. Yeah. Uh, and 
That's why we are trying to work with some chefs, you know, like uh, really fine dining chefs, um, to uh, to kind of reverse this trend. Yeah. And to uh, to really make uh, ulam something that uh, can be uh, tied up to a sense of uh, gastronomy for for Malaysia. Uh, it, it will take some time, but I think it's it's, it's feasible. Uh, you, you just need to uh, identify the right trendsetter, you know, to 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 start a, a movement <laughs> about you know, yeah. uh, influence from the social elite, mm. which that is in the history of social change that uh, and fashion. That's normally how it works, you know, is yeah. uh, down from the social elite. And at the same time, we have to to work from uh, so this is a top down movement. Mm. But I think we also have to work uh, from bottom up, uh, which would be education, you know, at the primary school level. Yeah. Not formal education because uh, if it's formal education, is very often it seems as a burden. Okay, I have to learn this, you know, and so on. So uh, uh, what we want to do also is to. Uh, we're working on a model of uh, informal education, you know, like uh, ambulatory workshops. So we, we go into the schools, we create a students club in the universities, you know, to uh, to change the, the, the mindset and so on. And, and um, so we just, you just need to convince a, a few people uh, from the younger generation uh, at different level. The, the one at the university will, should become the leaders of tomorrow. So maybe they are the ones who will imprint change. Yeah. And uh, one at primary school, you know, you start early and you um, you um, uh, contribute to shaping the mind, but not something enforced uh, enforced by the system, yeah. but uh, you know something we uh, we present um, as a new body of knowledge. And some of them will not be interested, but the one who embrace it, then uh, they might also be prescriptors for their families and friends. You know. Mm. I feel that what you're saying is so revolutionary and so refreshing, especially for someone who is in academia. Because, you know, in my time studying in university, I always see a lot of discussions or a lot of projects done for the sake of just doing the research or doing the projects, and there is hardly any real change. You know, but what you're talking about is very refreshing because you talk about the relevance that your your work has to have for people to take interest in it and i think it's all about the packaging you know getting people interested in something that is so traditional and so heritage and another thing that you pointed out was uh, ethnic boundaries which then brings me back to the question of what exactly is ulam you know is it a fixed set of vegetables or produce that only the malays use or is it just produce that you can find within our region in general. Because when I was going to Singapore's wet markets, there were a lot of plants with medicinal properties that were used by the Chinese community as well. So things like Cecil joyweed or things like groundnuts that had its roots and its stems that were believed to have medicinal properties. So how would you define what ulam is? Okay, well, it's, it's a... Simple and uh, difficult question at the time because there's no real consensual definition. Like you know, most of the time when it comes to oral tradition, uh, th there was an attempt by a definition by um, Wee Hassan he, in in 2010 because he produced a book which is called uh, Ulam Salad Herbs of Malaysia, which is a very good book, and he um, 
he defined gulam as any salad herbs. So the term uh, is is not self-explanatory, but uh, which are uh, eaten uh, raw or slightly blanched and eaten with rice. Uh, so that was his uh, definition uh, in 2010, which I think is relevant. Um, it was coming, of course, from a I think a Malay viewpoint, because being a, a Malay scholar himself. Um, but uh, in, I mean, my project, I just uh, broadened this definition to um, uh, local edible flora from the Malay archipelago. Uh, because if you talk to uh, Orangasli, for example, indigenous groups, you know, they, uh, they will incorporate in that definition uh, some fruits, they will incorporate some nuts, uh, you know. So um, and uh, so for them, it's anything that they they forage into the jungle, you know. Uh, so that's their ulan. Uh, if you go to uh, Philippines, you know, in, ta in Tagalog, ulan means a dish. Uh, so it's even it's even broader. So, uh, but I think for me, a fair definition, I mean, which is loose enough to uh, to incorporate a lot of things, is uh, would be. Uh, uh, local edible flora, uh, whether it's native or naturalized, uh, uh, from the Malay archipelago. Mm. And do you feel that ulam, nasi ulam, is a hyper-local, hyper-specific to location kind of dish? In that, for example, if I was living in Melbourne, um, I would not be able to prepare nasi ulam. Or is your viewpoint something like ulam as a way of living um, in that you use whatever is local to where you're living um, in the making of the dish? Okay, so, so the next two questions in one is uh, nasi ulam and ulam as a way of living. Uh, well, nasi ulam for me is very interesting because it's really um, a kind of... Uh, instant photograph into history, you know, uh, because if you look at, at the communities that prepare nasi ulam, um, all of them come from uh, uh, from places that uh, that have coastal lines, you know. Uh, you have the nasi ulam from the Babanonias in, in, uh, in Laka. Uh, you have the, the nasi uh, I mean, similar version to Nasi Ulama. You have the Nasi Krabu from the East Coast, you know. Uh, you have the Urab Timun uh, Kresek from the Chetis, you know, the Peranakan Indians. Uh, so uh, th they are uh, either straight settlements or uh, communities uh, alongside the coastline, uh, which uh, are also kind of hybridized with other culture. Because the Peranakan, of course, is, is a is an encounter of cultural contacts, you know, between uh, Nonyas, between Chinese merchants, if you go back to history, and uh, local wives. Uh, same for the Chetis. Um, the, on the East Coast, Kelantan, you know, where, where they do, uh, or uh, Nasi Krabu, for example, they, they have, um, of course, they are Siamese influence, you know, and they, uh, they were also welcoming traders because they, they were, their settlements are alongside the coastal line. So for me, it's very interesting because it's uh, Nasi Ulam. If you look at it a bit romantically, you know, it's a, it's a kind of celebration of uh, cultural contact be between a foreign culture and a local one. Um, uh, you know, like uh, 
that's number one. I think the number two is uh, also a very, for me as an anthropologist, a very interesting encounter between uh, nature and culture. Mm. Because if you look at the rice, the rice is cooked. I mean, it's transported into a tiffin, you know, there's a symbolism to it and so on. So it, this culture, uh, the rice and the utensils uh, represent culture. But the ulam, because it's eaten raw, there's no transformation, there's no cooking process. Uh, it is the embodiment of nature. Mm. So it's culture and nature uh, 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 that, uh, you know, that are being wed into one, uh, one unique dish. Uh, so for me, nasi ulam is a very, very, um, very fascinating dish for many reasons. Historical and also, uh, uh, also relates to environment because the, the Peranakans, for example, the settlers, uh, they were bringing their, their rice cooking technique from uh, China, for example, but uh, they, uh, they kind of acknowledged the, the host society that uh, welcomed them by, uh, and of course for health reason, obviously, but because they, they, they transported tidbits of nature raw, you know, without altering them into their dish, you know. Do you think that nasi ulam would be a difficult dish to be exported to the rest of the world? given that it's so hyper-local? Uh, don't think so. I mean, of course, Nasi Ulam as such, you know, uh, you, will never, uh, you will never get an exact replica, but that's not the point. But if, if you um, reword it as a herb rice, for example, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you can export the model. It's, it's, uh, it's not very difficult, as long as you, uh, you know, every society can make it almost, uh, if they have the relevant ecosystem. Uh, Except if you live in the desert, of course, but if you're yeah. in Europe, you know, with um, they have a lot of local plants as well, you know, or in Australia, the same. You you just use your local flora, make sure you uh, you use it fresh in, into the rice. Uh, or it can be even another cereal, you know, uh, it can be your local, um, uh, you call local wheat or quinoa or rye or, you yeah. know, oats. Mm. And I think given that this dish is so rich in history and culture and heritage, like what you pointed out, do you feel that treating the dish like a way of life um, and, and incorporating different kinds of non-traditional herbs or cereals into the dish would be cultural appropriation? Uh, well, okay. That's a difficult one. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I have a... Tr- I troubles myself with the not troubles, but I have uh, I would say reservation with um, uh, the upstream of cultural appropriation, which is uh, cultural identity through cuisine, and uh, I'm very uh, I'm very suspicious about all these uh, battles, you know, or to mm. claim uh, the property of uh, I don't know a nasi lemak or you know uh, any dish you know between. Uh, Singapore and Malaysia or Malaysia and Indonesia and so on because for me it's, it's not relevant at all because uh, it's the uh, when these dishes were created it was way before that the colonial borders that define us today were established you know so these were dishes were coming from uh, Nusantara you know the, the Malay archipelago you know uh, and so it was not it was not Indonesian, it was not Malaysian, it was not Singaporean because this uh, this country didn't exist. You know, it was just uh, 
series of kingdoms uh, uh, doing trade together. And then um, 20th century, 19th, 20th century, uh, I mean, uh, borders were uh, laid down by colonial powers. And so suddenly we discover ourselves, uh, Malaysian or Singaporeans, and then we claim this dish and that dish. But uh, for me, it doesn't, doesn't yield any any value you know so and in, in instead of uh, i mean claiming the dish i think we should uh, acknowledge the history and the complexity uh, of it and the transformation along the way because some uh, some dishes uh, some dishes i mean it's very difficult to retrace it but uh, some maybe you can reconstruct a little bit uh, they were born what way they have been transformed uh, uh, through time Sometimes the, the, there were some colonial additions, you know, like uh, for the roti chanai, for example, uh, or the tetarek, because you know uh, condensed milk was um, brought through uh, industrialization because of the tin, uh, uh, you know. So, uh, so without colonization, there wouldn't be industrialization. There wouldn't be a, a tin mines, so there wouldn't be. Uh, tin cans, so there wouldn't be condensed milk, you know, so there yeah. wouldn't be any direct, you know, so uh, so I think it's it's much better to um, to take a bit of uh, trouble to reconstruct all this, the, the history uh, and the complexity of the dish and acknowledge the different influences, pre-colonial, colonial, post-colonial, post rather than claiming identity, because identity is very stiff, you know, and uh, it's also contentious. Mm. So why you want to create hostility of a dish, you know, yeah, dishes are, sure. are meant to share, you know, not, not to uh, fight upon it. Yeah. Mm. So I understand that in your work, you are trying to create a database of native greens. Um, how has that process been like for you and what were some difficulties that you encountered? Okay, so uh, we are uh, getting close to step one of... Uh, of this process, because we could do it thanks to originally to Toyota Foundation in Japan, you know, because uh, you know uh, better than me that any research you need funding, and um, the, the funding we didn't get it locally, not because we didn't want to, but because uh, we we uh, uh, we just got this um, we won this call for projects with the Toyota Foundation, and uh, so will be deliver, uh, delivering a prototype of the future Ulam School website to the foundation by end of this month. But it's just a prototype uh, with a, a mini database as a start. And uh, what we want to do is, after this, is uh, we will take until September to um, enhance this website to a more operational version uh, that can be uh, used by a large, larger audience. But we don't want to make it, uh, as you said before, you know, you know, one shot uh, uh, research outcome uh, just because we need to to uh, to yield is deliverable uh, to the founder of the research. Uh, we want this project to continue to go on, and we want to feed the database mm. uh, uh, every year. I mean, uh, several times a year with uh, new plants, new ulam, new uh, recipes. You know. Uh, and uh, con continue uh, investigating and continue uh, informing people as well. Mm. 
not only in Malaysia, because uh, Toyota Foundation originally, uh, uh, they, they call for a transnational projects. So we have uh, data from uh, three countries. One of them is Malaysia, of course. The, the other ones are Cambodia and Vietnam. Mm. So they also have their ULAM. You know, ULAM doesn't stop at the borders. Uh, they just call it differently. And uh, so we'll have recipes and database from these countries as well. And uh, so that's what we want to do. We want to expand it and try to, uh, to add variables that are not necessarily found in uh, other databases. Because as I said before, uh, research on plants is normally quite monolithic in a sense that, you know, it comes from one uh, discipline or one um, field of research, you know, it's nutrition, okay? Or you have, a, you have very, very good and uh, powerful databases uh, from ethnobotany, for example, you know, the, uh, the one that make reference uh, from the US and the UK, they have like 7,000 plants and so on. Uh, but it's really from an ethnobotanist viewpoint. So we want to enrich this with uh, adding on recipes. Uh, most of them vegetarian or vegan, but not exclusively. And we want to, uh, to insert also nutritional uh, input, mm. which the botanical uh, database uh, do not do. And uh, uh, anthropological as well, uh, context, you know, uh, where can you find it by, uh, from uh, which culture, you know, uh, what is the, any religious symbolism or yeah. uh, how is it connected to the system of value of that particular ethnic group and so on. So that's what we want to do. And um, so that's for the website, which inc will uh, include this database. And uh, the step two will be, uh, uh, because it's a school, right? So we have to teach as well. So uh, uh, we are aiming at opening a, a course uh, next year in 2022. Uh, uh, not exactly on ULAM per se, but ULAM will be at the core of it. Will be more on the, what we call um, uh, in anthropology a virtuous uh, food system. You know? mm. a food system that carries a lot of systemically a lot of benefits, like I described before. You know, short supply chain and uh, uh, affordability and health benefits uh, yeah. uh, and um, social inclusion for indigenous uh, communities and so on. Mm. I feel like your vision is so exciting. I would want to work for you at the Wulam School. <laughs> it's so <laughs> exciting and I can't wait to see what you're going to do. And I really love what you talked about when you talked about the multidisciplinary approach that you're taking and, and the fact that you're not just speaking with experts, but you're also speaking with lay people to find out about the cultural context. I think that's so important because when I went into the wet markets in Singapore to, you know, buy uh, these kind of produce, I realized that the older folk really have so much wisdom that have not been documented. So what were some difficulties that you had when you conduct such research? Was it easy to find information all the time? Because a lot of these plants go by, you know, maybe dialect names or different ethnic names. I think the biggest challenge is to reconcile uh, oral tradition and, uh, and science. Hmm. Uh, because oral tradition will tell you, okay, this ulam is good for, um, I don't know, for infection or uh, for fever or for, uh, should, should give it to uh, um, a pregnant lady just, just before delivery. And so, so, so you have all kinds of, um, of benefits that have been conveyed through oral tradition. Mm. Uh, 
but very few have been uh, tested uh, and proven tested and verified by science mm. uh, that's number one so that, it, that is the first challenge uh, so we, we have to be very cautious if we are we want to relay this kind of information on the website because uh, 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 even though we respect a lot this oral tradition we cannot uh, rationally establish it as a truth you know uh, but at the same time, because a very small portion has been uh, tested by science, so uh, uh, if we only display what has been verified by science, that there won't be much. That's the first challenge. Second challenge also is because we are not medical doctors, uh, so we must be also very careful to uh, uh, when we write the health benefits, so it is not understood as a health prescription. If not, you step into uh, the the realm of uh, medicine, and we could also be in trouble because uh, we are not qualified, uh, you know, to to provide any dietary or even health uh, prescription. So these are the challenges. Uh, other challenges, a bit more minor, but it's uh, like you say, the complexity of um, the taxonomy. You know, um, because uh, if we talk to so my PhD students, uh, she she did a, a very in-depth field work with the Orangasli communities, uh, you know, in Pahang, and um, so she she would collect the names uh, in uh, in Samai dialect, for example, and then uh, even it sometimes was difficult to find uh, the equivalent in Malay. I'm not even talking about English or Latin, you know, mm. and. Uh, but at the same time, to enter it on the database, uh, we have to play along with the uh, ethnobotanical standards mm. because we we want to show that our work is uh, serious and you know scientifically informed. So, uh, and sometimes we we cannot find even if this big referential database of seven thousand plants, you know, that uh, that constitute the benchmark for ethnobotany, we cannot find a plant um, uh, in this database. So. And then is very. We we have then a dilemma. Should we, you, you know, should it put it in our Ulam school database uh, when it has not been verified? Uh, if we if we do it also that uh, scientifically is wrong because uh, that uh, on the um, for ethnobotany this plant uh, doesn't exist officially. You know, even though in physical reality it exists. But it has not been recorded. So we have all these kind of uh, small challenges now, mm. to navigate in between. Yeah. yeah, and it also seems like a very massive project because it seems like you require a lot of different people from different disciplines to come together and work together yeah. on one project. Um, and also, I, I suppose, funding, you know, I, I, I expect that there should be a lot of resources that are necessary for this project to be successful. So how long do you feel, how long-term do you see this project as being? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a definitely a long-term project because uh, I think it has its, its a usefulness for, for Malaysian society and beyond. So uh, definitely keep me busy until uh, retirement. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I don't want it to be uh, my project, so uh, there should be a succession plan as well, you know. Yeah, and, uh, continuity. Yeah, and uh, I think it's um, uh, we have to find a way. I'm working on it to uh, 
to find a sustainable source of income for, for this project to, to be going on, you know, for the database to be nurtured and so on. Uh, so um, uh, one of, uh, uh, that's the purpose also of opening the course. Of course, the course will, uh, will be meant to educate people and we will uh, uh, try to set uh, tuition fees that are affordable, uh, but the plan is to take a portion of these fees and to reinvest them into the, the research. So at least we have a recurrent source of funding that, mm -hmm. that can keep uh, the project alive. Yeah. Of course, on, on, in addition, we will look for grants, mm. owners, benefactors, and so on, but um, uh, we cannot rely on this because it's sporadical, uh, you know, it's ad hoc. And uh, out of experience, I know that donors and benefactors come only when uh, the project is a success. So yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> they won't come at the beginning. Uh, and the grants is hypothetical. So, uh, I mean, it's my responsibility to find um, a recurrent source of income so the yeah. projects can do. Yeah. Mm. And I read that um, you are planning to work with indigenous communities like the Orang Asli's and um, kind of use this project or this school as a way to give them um, a source of income. So how do you see yourself working with this community? Yeah, uh, this one is step two as well because we... Um, because of the pandemic situation that now we we, we cannot have, have contact with them at the moment because they most of them are retreated into the the forest you know so uh, i think it won't happen before 2022 uh, but um uh, i mean i i visited some settlement myself and uh, uh two of my uh, doctoral students they they done their field work in uh, you know orangasli settlement so they they have contacts already uh, which are very positive. So once the pandemic crisis is over, then we want to go back to this settlement and uh, to, to, to see um, how we can help. But again, I'm very careful with this notion of assistance because um, we don't want to be seen as a savior and so on. And so on. Yeah. But I uh, want to see whether there's a way to improve the system, when I say the system, is more specifically the supply chain. Because from uh, what I know at the moment, at least with these settlements, um, uh, they, cult they cultivate uh, ulam, you know. Uh, some they forage. Actually, it's interesting because there are three levels. They are, they, are, they are the ulam that they forage. Some of them are quite rare. We haven't heard about it. They are the ulam that they, uh, they cultivate uh, for the market, you know, to, to, to sell, uh, and there's a middleman to it. And this ulam, unfortunately, is being grown with pesticides mm. because of yield and so on. But uh, there's a third level, the Angasi also cultivate some ulam, which is different from the one they, they forage, and they cultivate for themselves. And this one grow kind of widely, no, no pesticide at all, because for, for them is really, uh, the ultimate horror, you know, the uh, chemicals into their soil. So they, they will not eat the, the one they cultivate uh, to be sold, which is revenue stream for them. Yeah. Uh, but they, they will have a pot of land uh, on the side for them where uh, it grows organically and uh, totally free of pesticides. This is the one they eat. So 
what I would be interested in, in and what our team is interested in is to see how we can develop you know, this uh, organic cultivation uh, and to, to create a short supply chain without the middlemen because at the moment they, they don't earn as much as they should be uh, mm. because you know yeah the cut the man is, is, is quite sizable uh, mm. and uh, uh, we want we want through the, the the platform and our network we want to connect them with the, the end consumer either end consumers uh, you know people really believe in in, uh, in eating healthy and local also to some restaurants which we are and we chefs we have been working with Mm. And I think there are a lot of chefs now in Malaysia who are increasingly using local produce. Uh, I know that Dewakan is one of them. Um, using yeah, I, I've been working a lot with uh, uh, Chef Darren Tio as well. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've watched some of his interviews and it's just amazing what he's doing, doing like patai miso and exp- like pushing the boundaries when it comes to local ingredients. Because I feel that a lot of people kind of uh, put local ingredients in boxes, like it can only be prepared in this way, in the traditional way. Yeah, yeah, th- yeah that's why when you was mentioning the Pranakans uh, and you know, and uh, cultural appropriation, uh, I think it's, uh, we, we have to, uh, to be careful with this, as I said before. But at the same time, you know, we can acknowledge it through um, intangible heritage with UNESCO, for example, you know, uh, that would be nice. Uh, and not only Nasiulam, but the whole Pranakan food system. Uh, but at the same time, you know, um, culture is like society, it evolves, you know. So uh, then uh, if we want people to eat ulam, I think the, uh, the culinary uh, arts and practices must evolve as well and uh, must uh, what uh, Darren is doing, for example, is fantastic because he, you know, influence from Japan and and so on. Uh, so I think that's that's the way. You know, you you don't compromise anything, but you just uh, uh, just reinvent. You know, and um, uh, that's how you will get people to to eat ulam. Of course, uh, the challenge of ulam because it must be eaten raw or for some um, uh, slightly blanched or boiled. You know, it's um, um, it limits a lot um, the culinary accommodation, but if you are if you are creative, you have an artist, and if you have, um, uh, I think you must have uh, a framework in your mind. You, you must have something to uh, to say as well, you know. Uh, and I think it's with Darren, it works quite well. I think it's not a coincidence whether it was in top fifty uh, Asian mm. restaurants. 1990, uh, because he's he's able to intellectualize his cuisine, you know. And if you have a if you have a point of view, if you have a system of value, if you have a message, uh, then uh, it all makes it all makes sense. Your culinary system makes sense, you know. Yeah. If you just want to serve uh, the trends, you will you will never achieve anything. I mean, it, it will not last long, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I think what you're doing is so important and it's so great, you know, you make me feel really excited. I, I want to visit the Ulam school the next time I'm in Malaysia with my husband. Yeah, that would be great. 
That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. My guest on the show was Dr. Eric Olmedo. For those of you who are new on the show, you can find more content on our website, sgpnoodles.com, where you'll be able to access heritage recipes and video tutorials on how to prepare them. There is also a shop section where you can purchase our online courses and planner for 2021 to keep this platform going. If you'd like to sign up for our weekly newsletter to get updates and more cooking tips, visit sgpnoodles.substack.com. That is S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K. Once again, thank you for all your support towards Singapore Noodles and I'll catch you all next week.